Good. So glad we're here. Thanks for joining us today. Last, um, last week, we spent a few minutes talking about the difference between knowledge and belief. Between knowledge and belief. So a little background. Some of you guys are here from out of town. We've been talking about kinds of relational dynamics, emotional health. Um, and then here at the end of the year, we're focusing in on kind of the intellectual side of things for, for four weeks. So uh, this is, we're going to just dive right in, all right? So there's more coffee out there if you need it, all right? Lots of, lots of great food today. We're talking about the difference between knowledge and belief. I told a silly story last, last week about um, our failed attempt to drive my dad's truck when we were trying to pick up some firewood. My dad's truck has two gas tanks. We filled up the second gas tank full of gas thinking that would accomplish our goal, but we did not know that that gas tank has a fuel pump in it that did not work, and so we ended up on the side of the road. We didn't know, what we didn't know was the reality. We didn't know reality. Consequently, the reality was the gas in that tank is never going to reach the, the engine. Consequently, we end up on the side of the road. We fully believed the truck would run. We acted on that belief, which shows you that it was genuine. We acted on it, which shows you that it was a genuine belief. But our belief was not based in reality. Therefore, it did not work out as we hoped it would. So there's knowledge and there's belief, and those, there's a difference between the two. Belief, knowledge is based on what's true, what is actually real. Belief might be based on what's real, or it might not be. In other words, we really believed putting fuel in this truck was going to get us down the road. We just happened to be wrong in that case. We didn't know the truth in that case. So there's knowledge and there's belief. You follow me? Okay, so of course there's a whole lot more in this spectrum. I put together this little diagram in an attempt to show that knowledge is based on reality. That's the same. Belief, part of belief, a lot of things we believe are based on what we know, which is based on reality. Some of our beliefs probably extend out beyond what we know. We just believe them. We don't actually know them. That's why it's built that way. That's why that top bar is longer. There's some beliefs that are not substantiated by knowledge or supported by reality. And there's more to say about this. Two things specifically. Beyond knowledge and belief is commitment. Commitment. Commitment may be built on belief. But it is not necessarily built on belief, much less knowledge. In other words, you can commit to things you don't even believe. I have a friend who is strongly committed to his church. It's a Mormon church. He doesn't believe the theology. But he's very committed to the relationships there, and he appreciates the lifestyle that is supported. It's interesting, isn't it, that we have the ability to do this, that we can commit to things we don't even necessarily believe, and then we certainly don't know. Um, I often do this when I drive. I'm really bad with directions when I drive. I was driving out of town yesterday. My 10-year-old said, Dad, you're terrible with directions. When I passed the place the second time, passed it. You're terrible with directions, and he's right. Sometimes, here's the deal. I don't know where I am, and I don't even have a sense of belief about which way I should go. <laughs> so, uh, but, but here's the thing. The road comes to a T, and I got to commit one way or the other, right? The commitment is not based on belief or knowledge. It's got to be right or left, right? So I got to just make a commitment and go in one of those directions. Sometimes we see this in faith communities. It is not necessarily bad. What I mean is people who remain committed even though they're not really sure they believe this. Not really sure I believe this or all of this. People who certainly don't know, don't have a sense of assured 
personal knowledge, but they remain committed. And, and sometimes I feel like this is um, admirable. People remain committed. And then other times I feel like it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad. Um, because it is a commitment that is unsubstantiated. It is a commitment that really has no roots or foundation. It's extending way out beyond belief and knowledge. And then at an even greater distance from the biblical ideal of knowledge, Jesus says, hold to my teachings so that you will know the truth. That is the ideal. At the farthest extent from the biblical ideal of, of knowledge is profession. Sometimes people profess to believe things that they're not even committed to. And, and there's all kinds of reasons people do this. Usually it has something to do with wanting to fit into a group. So they'll say, oh yeah, I, I believe that guy's right, or I, I actually like that politician too, or yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Profession that is not built on real commitment, though, is almost always destructive because it's kind of empty words. That's what it is. Profession that's not built on a commitment is just you talking. It's just us talking. Um, I, I have told the story before um, of, of this time in my life when I was being examined by this big room um, of pastors, by this, a bunch of pastors in this room as part of my ordination process. And one of the answers that I gave to one of the gentleman's questions was not up to his standards. And so he proceeded to uh, lecture me about what I needed to do. And I responded with a sincere question. I said, can you teach me how to do that? And, and, and to my surprise, he got kind of flustered and irritated. And he said this. He said, I, I don't do it, but that's what you need to do. And, yeah, it's stu it stuck with me. It's almost been 20 years, and it stuck with me because it was so unattractive. It was so unattractive to me. Because he was essentially professing something he wasn't committed to, didn't actually believe, and certainly didn't know anything about, except that I needed to do it, right? It was unattractive to me. There was no, there was no reality there. Hey, there's no substance to what he was saying to me. Um, and this kind of profession without foundation is part of what makes Christians look so ridiculous. To put it really bluntly, we look ridiculous when we don't know what we're talking about. When we don't know what we're talking about. If I'm sick, I got a big lump in my neck or something like that, I don't need someone who's going to talk to me about, you know, their theory of medical treatment. I don't need someone who's just going to make a commitment and just do, we got to do something about it. <laughs> and, I, and I don't need someone who believes they just so much believe in this specific kind of treatment. What I need desperately is someone who knows and whose knowledge is based in reality. I need someone, and now we'll do the same thing just in the other direction. Okay? I need someone who accurately, rec start from the bottom, accurate, accurately recognizes what is real and roots their knowledge in reality, whether they like it or not, can accurately represent what is actually happening. Their knowledge is rooted in reality, and then they believe, based on that, they act on this knowledge, even though there's going to be some risks involved, there'll be some things that maybe don't work out as they hoped they would, but then they make a commitment, even though there's going to be adversity, and then finally, if necessary, they profess to something. They'll talk about the whole healing process. They'll say, well, this is what's going on, bottom, and therefore this is what we're going to do about it as they work their way up. I need, in other words, I need a profession that is rooted in this deep foundation. In other words, if I'm sick, I need a doctor who knows what she's talking about. That's what I need. It's like the knowledge 
at this point is the most critical. I don't care if they speak a different language and I can't understand them because the profession is actually not that important to me as compared to the authenticity of their understanding of the knowledge. It's knowing that's important. So it doesn't matter if you're looking at physical health or emotional health or financial health or social health or spiritual health. Um, knowledge does matter. It matters. In spiritual communities uh, like the church, we don't often talk about the importance of knowledge. We tend to talk about the importance of belief and the importance of commitment and the importance of professing what we say. But I want to say that knowledge is the foundation of the way we see and act in the world. In other words, it's what our, our worldview is based in. So today is week two of a four-week series that we're calling That Explains It, Jesus' Answers to Four Life Questions. And these four life questions that we're considering are asked in some form or another by everybody, by individuals, by families, especially as they raise their kids. Now it matters. Now you're going to demonstrate what you value as you, as you raise your kids. They're, these questions are asked by companies. They're asked by cultures. And the way that we answer these four questions form the way that we see and act in the world. They form our worldview. The challenge is to see the world in a way that lines up with reality. <laughs> the challenge is to see the world in a way that lines up with the way things actually are. A, an author named Dallas Willard um, died at 77 years old about six years ago. He wrote a book called Knowing Christ Today. It's been so helpful to me in preparing this series. As I said last week, I'm leaning heavily on Dallas's work with some of the big ideas of this series. Here's a couple quotes that caught my attention last year as I taught this material in another context. He says, mistakes about reality lead to brutal encounters with it. <laughs> That's good. He also says, when desire, that is what we want, conflicts with reality, that is, as it actually is, sooner or later, reality wins. It doesn't really matter how much you want it. Sooner or later, reality wins. So last week, we asked the first of these four big life questions, which is what is reality? In other words, what is true? What is real? What is actual? What can we ultimately rely on? And there are all kinds of ways that people answer this question. Some say and live like reality is power. Some say and live like the ultimate thing you can count on is money. This is what moves things. This is what changes things. Some say and live like it's, it's science. If you can demonstrate it scientifically, then it's real. Some, those are the ones people will tell you that they believe in. Some people, as somebody pointed out last week, their ultimate reality is fear. That's the base note in their life. That's the way they see the world. That's the way that is, that's what is influencing the way they see and what they do. The ultimate reality is fear. For some, it's popularity. For some, it's popularity. I was asking somebody recently, a high school student, why did you put that online? Why did you put that up? Um, and uh, she said, well, and it, well, it basically came down to, if a lot of people respond to this, I feel legitimate, right? Um, it's a, like a popularity thing, ultimately. It's, it's like that's the ultimate reality, almost. That's what's, that's what's moving the culture around. Some say reality is different for everyone. You know, it's circumstantial, it's relative, it always changes. Well, who's right? Who is right? Whose view of reality is correct? It, I think it comes down to this. You got to trust somebody. You got to believe somebody's perspective on this because there are conflicting perspectives. Christians are those 
who have decided to trust Jesus and believe what Jesus says about reality, that that is what is ultimately true. And there's all kinds of reasons that we place our trust in Jesus. But that essentially is what we're invited to do. What is reality? Trust Jesus' answer, which is God is reality and his kingdom. This is revealed in the way he teaches about how to pray and other things. The ultimate reality is that God exists and there's this kingdom. There's this dynamic in which God's will reigns and that is what is ultimately true. So Jesus invites us to trust him, to believe him, that he is right. In fact, that what is real and what we can rely on is the existence of God and his kingdom. And maybe we don't know that personally. Maybe we haven't experienced that. But that's okay because the emphasis in the teachings of Jesus is belief, trust. So we can, and it's enough, we can trust that Jesus is right. Okay? We can trust, we can believe that Jesus is right. Jesus applauds belief and he requires belief. But that's what it really comes down to is belief. But then, this is fascinating to me, in John 8, he says, but you can also know it. You can also know. You're called to trust me and believe. All who believe are saved, is what Paul says, what John 3.16 says. But, but you can also know the truth. He says this in John 8. We covered it last week in detail. He says this, to the Jews who had believed him, believed him, Jesus says, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciple. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, right? So there's this experiential knowledge. You can actually know some things. You can know the truth of God. You can actually enter into a real relationship with God. So yes, you're following God because you believe what Jesus says, but now it also is something that you yourself know. So the takeaway last week was that according to Jesus, reality is God and God's kingdom, and even and we've got, we've got to trust Jesus with that, believe that he's right, but even more, we can know that personally. We can hold to his teachings, and we can know that personally, which leads to the second big life question, big worldview question, First is, what is reality? Second is, therefore, who has it made? Who has it made? Do you know what I mean by who has it made? Does that phrase resonate with you? I can't tell if, not really. Let's try to talk about it. When I say, who has it made? Who do you see? Who do you regard as, oh my gosh, they, they are set. They got it made. Turn to somebody next to you and just offer a couple ideas. Who has it made? Let me show you a couple examples, people you might be talking about. This is Lionel Messi. He's the captain. <laughs> this is the captain of a professional football team, soccer team. They call it football. Uh, in Barcelona, he's also the captain of the Argentina national team. And according to Forbes magazine, Messi is the highest-paid athlete in the world this year. Highest-paid athlete in the world this year. His 2019 income is 127 million dollars which I can't even get my brain around. I can't even breathe. I don't even understand that big number. So I did some math, and this is what it works out to. Uh, Messi makes $349,000 $349, every day, every day of the year. 
this year. I still can't get my brain around that. I don't even know. That's like too big of a number. So I did some more math, and it comes out to this. I had to personalize it, so forgive me. But uh, Messi makes three times my annual salary before lunch every day. <laughs> Whether he plays soccer or not. All right, so it depends on what is reality. Who, ha who has it made? Who has it made? Well, it depends on your view of reality. But if, if reality is measured... Um, by athletic success with the uh, measurement of dollars attached to that success, Messi has it made, okay? Here's another person. His name is Sir Timothy John Berners-Lee. Anybody ever heard of this guy? Well, have you really? See, it's these interesting, yeah, medical, technological people. I've never heard of him. He's an English engineer, computer scientist, best known as the inventor of the World Wide Web, despite... Others claims to have done the same. He is currently the, a computer science professor at, get this, Oxford and MIT. You know, because I guess you can just do both. Queen of England knighted him for his pioneering work, which could easily be argued in my mind as the most influential scientific accomplishment in modern history, if not ever. If, and it depends on your view of reality, but if reality is scientific or technological discovery measured in worldwide influence, you know, Timothy Berners-Lee, he has it made. He has it made. This is Lucas. Uh, I, had the, uh, I had the early morning carpool uh, assignment for a day this week, and according to the boys in my truck on the way to school, Lucas, who is in fourth grade, always wins the recess games. Always. <laughs> yeah. He owns it. So, you know, who has it made? Well, it depends on your view of reality. But if your view of reality is that owning recess in the fourth grade is like the ultimate, right? Well, then Lucas has it made. <laughs> He's at his top of his game right now. That's not really a picture of Lucas because I didn't talk to his mom. So it's not, yeah. Who has it made? Messi? Uh, Berners-Lee? Lucas have it made? It depends on what's real, doesn't it? Depends on what's real. It depends on the ultimate reality, on what we can count on. What is Jesus' answer to this question? According to Jesus, reality is God and God's kingdom. Therefore, the one who has it made is anyone who is alive, and that's the key word, anyone who is alive in that kingdom, anyone who is alive in the kingdom of God, that is, anyone who is interactively engaged with God and the reality or the dynamics or the power of his reign, of his lordship, of his kingdom, the person for whom a real relationship with God is not some sort of distant theological concept or fanciful hope, but the person for whom a real relationship with God is a, is a daily reality. If you know God, if you know God and you're experiencing the reign, the lordship, the he is in chargeness of God in a life-giving way on the daily, Jesus says, you got it made. You got it made. Of course, you got it made is a cultural phrase. Jesus didn't actually say that, but the word he uses that's used throughout the Bible for this concept is blessed. You're blessed. You are blessed. Oh, the blessedness 
is a way sometimes it's translated. I know that even the word blessed today gets like widely used kind of liberally to mean almost anything you want. But Jesus uses the word blessed to describe the experience of being alive or of living in the power of God. I actually have a, I, I experience, it's not a possession, so have isn't the right word. I am in this relational um, dynamic with the divine that is influencing my life in a way that is fueling me forward, is bringing joy and peace at some level. Let me show you two examples of this, one in the Old Testament, which is the Jewish scriptures, and then one in the New Testament. So we'll go to Daniel 3 first. Daniel chapter 3, uh, page 615 in the red Bibles that we handed out. This story happens following one of the major events of the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, are, are um, conquered by Babylon, 586 B.C. It's about 600 years before Jesus is born as a man. Israel is conquered by Babylon. Their philosophy of culture and warfare is to take everybody they've conquered and keep them together in these camps. Right? So they take everybody off the property of that's Jewish, and they destroy the temple, they destroy the old land, they bring them to Babylon, and then they, they, just, they just refigure their identities. They give them new names, they train them in a whole other culture, a whole other language. The Psalms are full of examples of how the Jews, they can't even sing the songs because they're, they're away from their land, they're speaking another language. The best and the brightest young Jewish people were actually incorporated into this intentional training process. And they were raised, because they were some super gifted people, to support the kingdom of Babylon. The king of Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar, for the Hebrew slaves that are elevated to the highest points or places in his, in his government, were Daniel, these are the Hebrew names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Probably, maybe heard of Daniel because he wrote this book. But then the other three were given the Babylonian names that they're given instead of their Hebrew names. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are their Babylonian names. Now, the opening of the third chapter of Daniel's book, we read that the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, makes this massive 90-foot gold image and puts it out on this big plain called Dura. And then he holds a big dedication ceremony, and he invites anyone who is, everyone who is anyone in Babylon, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to go to this big party. And he's choreographed this ceremony. When the music starts, everybody at once is supposed to bow down to the ground. And they're supposed to worship this big 90-foot golden behemoth that he's out there. And everybody does it. Except the Jews. Except those three young men. They don't bow to the image because they don't acknowledge that this king and his, and his image are the ultimate reality. Now, they're not naive. They're not debating that uh, he's the king. They know he's the king of Babylon. And they know there's a real gold image there. It's actually physically present. But they just don't view that as what is ultimately real. The most essential, basic, ultimate truth. So this gets reported to the king. The king erupts with rage. The young Jewish men are called to the king. Nebuchadnezzar says, is it true you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? And then he gives them another chance to kind of prove their loyalty. If they do, he'll forget about this little failure to bow to my image incident. But, he says, as uh, incentive, if you don't bow, I'm going to give you another chance, but if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you into this furnace, this blazing furnace. 
And then, this is so interesting, this is the end of verse 15, he says this, and here's where he cuts right through all the culture that is totally different from ours, and he says this, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? We might paraphrase and translate that in this way. If whatever it is that you root your security in is taken away because you refuse to bow to it, you refuse to acknowledge it as the ultimate reality, maybe it's your financial security, then what God is going to rescue you from the insecurity that will come as a result? Where will God be then? It is a challenge on our perspective of what is the ultimate reality, what can ultimately be counted on and relied on. So Nebuchadnezzar, this king from 600 years before Jesus on the other side of the planet, asked this profound question, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It cuts right through the facade and gets right to what are you actually relying on? And here's the young Jewish men's response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to him. This is chapter 3, verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter if we are thrown into the blazing furnace. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And then catch this. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude toward them changed. He was giving them a second chance, right? But now that's over. He orders the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of his strongest soldiers to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, are bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. Then the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the, get this, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. Okay, so the question is, the question this morning is, who has it made? And in this story, up until verse 23, King Nebuchadnezzar clearly has it made. He is in ultimate control. He's got all the wealth. He can even tell you who to worship. But what makes this story so clarifying is how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognize the truth that the God who was revealed to the Jewish people, to the Hebrew people, is the real God. Even despite all the demonstrable apparent 
failure of their God. Their temple's been destroyed. They've been carted off to a new place. They got new names. They're speaking a different language. And yet still, they know, they recognize that even though King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on the planet, wields all imaginable human power, has set up this freakishly large gold thing in the middle of their whatever, that he's just, a, he's just an empty gas tank. That's all he is. He's an empty gas tank, right? He's impotent. In comparison to the one true God, right? He can do, he can say and do what he will, but he does not compare to the level of reality that is the one true God, the one who even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes at the end of the story is the most high God. In other words, the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality. Compared to this one true God, Nebuchadnezzar is completely uh, impotent. So these three Jewish boys are often praised for their faith and for their courage, and they should be probably. But in reality, this is what's encouraging to me. They're just living in light of the reality that they know to be true. That's what they're doing. They are living according to the reality that they know to be true. They're alive in the true kingdom, the kingdom of God. They have a real relationship with God. I mean, just to speak in like really casual terms about something super profound, that's the problem with the casual language sometimes for us. But essentially, they have a real relationship with God. And it is more significant that than this threat of death by the most powerful man in the world. Without that, they're going to be overwhelmed by this threat. They will succumb to the threat and they will, they will give praise to a false truth, a false God. But what they have is this understand, this knowledge of the real truth. They say, the God we serve is able to deliver us. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, we're not going to serve your God or worship the image of gold you've set up. Implication? Because they're not real. They're not real. They look real to a lot of people, but we know they're not real. Their power is limited. In the end, they cannot be relied on. Right? So we'll trust God. We'll trust God. That's what having it made looks like in kind of an Old Testament sense. You get thrown into a fiery furnace where you come face to face with the Son of God, and you come out and you're not even smelling like smoke. Right? You experience the reality, the ultimate reality of the one true God. That's living in light of reality. That's having it made. That's what we might say is, is blessed. That's blessed. I'll give you one more example from the New Testament. 600 years later, in what is considered to be Jesus' core teaching, it's kind of his manifesto on living in light of the kingdom of God. It's in Matthew chapter 5. He makes nine statements of defining, describing who it is that is blessed. By the way, our middle school kids and our high school students have been studying this and practicing these practices, practicing these as practices all fall. They've been leaning into this. It's called the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. This is what Matthew writes. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and be he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a minute with a couple of these. When, 
He's basically saying, when you've repented, when you've humbled yourself, when you're not loud and proud, you're poor in spirit, you know you can't do it by yourself because life has broken you down and you're humbled. You're humbled enough to know you need God. Jesus says the humble are blessed. The humble have it made. How? What? Because the humble are able to enter into a real relationship with God. How do they do that? They know they need him. It's just that they know every 12-step program begins with acknowledge you need help, right? Acknowledge you don't have what it takes. There's a blessing here that Jesus is talking about. You're blessed if you're humble. Why? Because you're, that is the critical first step in coming into a real relationship with God. The humble know they need God, and that's where it starts. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Several church fathers make the distinction that Jesus here is not talking about mourning death as much as he's talking about mourning the sadness of sin. Of, um, this, 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 he's, he's sad. He's mourning the brokenness that's connected to our pride. Here's the thinking behind it. Without a sense of remorse about your sin, about your destructive actions, we have no reason to change, right? If we don't feel a sense of remorse about it. When we are remorseful, when we mourn our sin, in other words, when we recognize that what we've done hurts us and hurts others, then um, our need for forgiveness, we recognize our need for forgiveness, Jesus says, well, there's good news for you. And now we have this interactive relationship. I'm grieving the destruction that I have caused through my selfishness. Jesus says, I have good news for you. Your heart is hurting about the same thing that hurts my heart. And now you come into this this different level of relationship with Jesus because you're grieving the very thing that, that, you're, that, that Jesus grieved. Right? It would be like if Connie is grieving something that hurt her husband Jeff. She understands what hurts him. That is a, that is a, a step into and also a byproduct of a real relationship. They actually have a real relationship. So Jesus says, even this experience of mourning is a blessing, because when you're mourning the same things that hurt Jesus' heart, you're actually in, engaging in a real relationship, a dynamic relationship with the heart of God. And then, and then he goes on, I'll read just a few more, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth, Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Re Look what he says, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we might summarize all of these statements by simply saying, you are blessed if you're alive in the kingdom of God. It's a really different view of reality than most people probably embrace, including myself. You're blessed if you're alive in this kingdom. You've got it made if you're actually living in the truth according to the way it actually is in this dynamic, real relationship with God. 
All right, just a final thought. The final thought is, really? Really? Is this not hard for you? This is hard for me. This is hard for me. Every time I read these, it's not like, well, it was this guy who probably had this cultural. No, this is Jesus. I can't escape this. There's something that creeps up inside of me when I read these statements about who is blessed. And maybe you're experiencing something like it. It's, it's something inside me that kind of recoils. It's something inside me that kind of goes, oh, it's kind of a crit. It's kind of like, really, the poor? The poor are blessed? Because I'm looking around and I, I don't think I want to be. I don't want that. And there's this deep interior resistance, this pushing back on the teachings of Jesus. And that resistance, friends, that resistance that is in me and maybe in you, it reveals how profoundly I've been shaped by another worldview. It's what it, it shows me just how out of sync my thinking is at times with apparently the thinking of Jesus, the priorities articulated by Jesus, and how much of my thinking is not based in the truth as Jesus reveals it. If, like Jesus, my view of reality were God and God's kingdom, I may have less of a problem with Jesus' description of who has it made. I would read this and i go, oh, clearly, makes sense to me. But I'm telling you guys, it doesn't make sense to me sometimes, a lot of the time. And, and the fact that I kind of cringe when I read, blessed are the meek, it reveals how deeply I, I actually see the powerful as the ones that have it made. Right? And the fact that I kind of cringe when I read, blessed are the persecuted, it's shining a light on the reality in my own heart that I, I actually really prioritize comfort. It's really important to me. Because the comfort, the comfort, uh, the comfortable people, they look like they're blessed to me. There's a part of me that still thinks that those who have it made are the popular, the widely accepted, those who are being applauded. They look like they have it made, not the persecuted. So the final thought is this. The, teachings of Jesus will not make sense unless we embrace Jesus' ultimate view of reality. The teachings of Jesus. I can't, I can't take the teachings of Jesus and try to fit them into a way of living that sees money as the ultimate reality, for instance. They won't fit in. I can't make it work. The teachings of Jesus make no sense if I'm trying to fit them into a worldview that says my personal comfort and my own pursuit of happiness is, is the ultimate priority. Almost nothing he does, says, or tells me to do will make sense if that's my worldview, if that's my set of priorities, if that's what I see as ultimately real. So what, what, what I'll do is I'll do one of two things. I will either write his instructions, his commandments, I'll either write them off as, oh, he must not mean that. He must not mean forgive one another or love your enemy. I'll either do that or I'll just sort of neuter much of what he has said and I'll end up with a Jesus, quote unquote, that fits really well in my life, endorses my worldview and just basically says, you get to define who, who has it made for yourself. And I'll decide what's blessed. 
I'll just sprinkle in a little Jesus where it's convenient for me so I can feel good. Jesus answers the question, who has it made? His answer, it starts to really reveal my values and my priorities. It reveals what really matters to me. And so the invitation is to recognize what Jesus has said and then to repent into it, to repent away from, in my case, my views of of reality that are not in alignment with his, to repent away from those things and to repent into, to come into alignment with reality as he declares it to be. To live for and with Jesus, to actually enter into a real relationship with God and his kingdom through Christ experience the reality of being blessed by God with life in his kingdom. I've ha- I, I'm, I'm challenged to, uh, to acknowledge before the Lord that my thinking is not in line with a lot of what Jesus says today. As I read this, as I this. And I just want to take a few uh, minutes this morning to invite you to respond, maybe in a similar way. Uh, if you'd like to, you're welcome to come and pray at the altar. You can pray at your seat. You can stand up, move around. Essentially, the, the invitation is this. To consider, do my, do my priorities in my life, do they line up with what Jesus is saying is is blessed? Or do I need to say, help me, Lord, to come to understand and to know and experience the life that you actually declare to be real and true? relationship with Jesus the most the most important thing that's the question to see the emptiness of the things we pursue with our whole hearts that are not worth our pursuit. They don't last. And I pray for mercy to turn to you and to live in a way that demonstrates that our relationship with you, that's the most important thing. That is where the life is. Everything else can fall away. That must be maintained. That must be nurtured. I pray for your grace for us, Lord. Us into this truth. I pray that you come alive in each of us in a way that is so compelling that these other things they lose their luster. They no longer tempt us and draw us away. Because what we're experiencing in you 
have mercy, Lord, on us, I pray in Jesus' name.